Today we are speaking with renowned scholar, activist, and writer Silvia Federici about her powerful and inspiring collection of essays, Reenchanting the World, Feminism, and the Politics of the Commons. These essays, written over a span of several decades, display her abilities to diagnose and indeed predict the most important issues facing us today. Speaking Out of Place is produced in collaboration with the creative process and is made with kind support from Stanford University. I alone am responsible for its content. Sylvia, you say we need to re-signify what the very concept of communism means to us and free ourselves from the interiorization of capitalist relations and values so that commoning defines not only our property relations, but our relations to ourselves and others. In other words, commons are not a given, but a product of struggle. I'd like you to connect this idea of struggle with this idea of re-enchantment. To me, the struggle should not ever be purely an oppositional action, but should actually be something constructive. Struggle is also a moment in which you raise your consciousness, you take your consciousness, you express a vision of the world that you want to construct, what is being denied. The struggle is at the same time a negation and also an affirmation of other possibilities, of another world, another vision. And because of it, the struggle is also transformative. It's not only a wall against your enemies, it's also reshaping the relationship with other people. It's a moment of collective reconstruction. Mm -hmm. It's a moment of collective solidarity. This, to me, has become a very important element. This is what I've learned from the women's movement, that so much of our comfort and when we left male-dominated organization mm -hmm. had to do not only with the program, but also the forms of organizing, the kind of relation that you have with people. It became very, very important to think of the struggle as something much different and far more creative, far more constructive. And this vision of the struggle is also what should attract people to look at the struggle as something in which they want to be, not as another burden not as another piece of work added to the day-to-day -day misery and to the day-and-day -day workload, but actually something that you look forward. Going to a meeting has to be something that you look forward as to go to a party. In the sense that here are the people that you feel connected, with whom you're building something, with whom you're discovering something. I wrote a piece that many people have liked called In Place of Joyful Militancy. In place of joyful militancy, it was really a, a scream against the struggle as alienated labor. As another piece of work, oh my God, I have to go to a meeting. <laughs> and instead saying, no, we have to really transform our relationship. And to see that the moment of the struggle is a moment of the constitution of ourselves. It's a moment of nourishment, of creating different relations with the other people and beginning to experiment. What does it mean to have different social relations? It's the moment of the creation of the new society. That creation is not, you know, after we have taken over the Winter Palace. That creation is now, changes our life now. Unless we do that, then it's going to be more difficult, actually, for people to be engaged. So this is my vision. It's such a powerful repudiation of Weber's notion of disenchantment. Yes. And the iron this is the enchantment of the world. 
is rediscovering the enchantment, the magic of relations that are transformative. We all know about falling in love. We all know how magical it is the moment when you are with another person and something begins to happen. And we know how powerful that is. Why that experience? That magic between two people of the transformation that looking at each other's eyes, talking to each other, finding in each other something that connects. Why that experience should not also take place when we talk about transforming the world? Why? So that is the magic. Speaking of this building of a new society, a new world, a magical world, can you speak about some of the other struggles that the project of building a commons would have to be in relationship with? Because as you point out so powerfully in your book, although commons are often invoked as a shibboleth of progressive politics or a panacea, it has actually been co-opted and used by international organizations and powerful states, for example, to claim a proprietary interest in the land, knowledges, artistic production of colonized oppressed peoples, which are claimed as a commons. Settlers articulate the project of building a commons on continuingly colonized indigenous lands. And we know from legal historians, too, that the settler project was instituted not only through the formation of private property, but also through settler commons on appropriated indigenous land. The land where I'm on, which currently calls itself Toronto, Dagaranto in indigenous languages, Mm -hmm. was the subject of an indigenous covenant that dished with one spoon wampum belt between Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee people to share and care for the land. But this too even is invoked by settlers and land acknowledgements to invite themselves into this covenant and to this indigenous commons as a way of self-ratifying their Mm -hmm. presence on indigenous land. And so can you talk a bit about some of the other struggles and relationships that have to be brought into the project of making a commons so that it doesn't simply end up reproducing the logics and violent dynamics of the colonial state that we are confronting? Yeah, absolutely. Many, many struggles. The struggle over the commons has so many fronts. Always say that the notion of the common should be seen as a way of organizing society. Because to look at it as a principle of social organization, then you realize that it needs to be present. It has to shape in a way every aspect of life, right? They have to find a common ground. And certainly the issue of land is fundamental. You cannot really have commons that are reproductive, that sustain the life of the commoners unless there is land. And land means a lot of things. Land is not one word. Land means waters. It means agriculture, means food, food sovereignty. It means trees. It means good air. It means relationship with animals. It means relationship of reciprocity where we also care for the land, not only take from it, care for it. So the whole issue of land is fundamental. Today, connected with it, the question of war, the struggle against war is, I'm very obsessed today, and this this is one of the things now on top of my mind. We hear, for example, of the cluster bomb, of what is happening in Ukraine. The land of Ukraine, the possibility of people to make a life in Ukraine is being destroyed every day for generation and generation. The land is going to be poisoned, and so in parts of Russia, the land is going to be poisoned to be destroyed. Landmines, which now the victims of landmines are especially children. So for years and years after the end of the war, the war keeps killing people, keeps mutilating, keeps destroying life. So today we cannot speak of commons unless we speak, of course, of the question of the land. 
We are listening every day now to what has been happening in Maui. And we are hearing of the land grabbers, already these ranchers who are arriving and on land that is still full of bodies, unreclaimed bodies. They have already put in their dirty money to take away the land of people, to build more tourist camps. The very same tourist camps they have destroyed because, as we understand, tourism has been one of the root causes of the fact that the land in Maui has become more and more arid, more and more prone. So this issue of what we put in the land, what kind of agriculture, away from the disindustrialized agriculture, away from the privatization process, away from this structural adjustment process. So to me, the issue of, for example, war, ecology, the issue of debt, there is a debt politics that is now destroying the world. And they're all connected. It's very interesting to see how many of the wars that are taking place on this planet have been preceded from period of impoverishment, which then fomented new conflicts due to this artificially created debt crisis, which now for decades has been destroying many parts of the world and has instigated a new recolonization process through the national debt and individual debt. They are connected because national debt, see, of social services, which means that people have to use more and more of their poor income to then pay for childcare, for healthcare, for transport. And so they too. So we have another new form of enslavement, new form, not to the slave trade, but to a financial form of enslavement, which is very devastating, leads many people to die, leads many people to live a miserable life. Most of them are women. I think that all these issues are really fundamental for the broad struggle for the construction of new commons, for the invention of new commons. And then the other side, of course, is the reclaiming, the recuperation of knowledge, knowledges and history, the collective history. This is something that I've learned over and over from people in Latin America, how important to connect to their ancestors, to this stories of those who have struggled in the past, to be able to go beyond the limits of our individual lives and to connect our life to this broader texture, which is the history of a struggle for liberation of the people. It means really to keep connecting through that history. It means to make sure that we challenge the daily destruction of the environment around us, which is a destruction of their memory. The United States leads the way. They are really paving over cemeteries of African people, of slaves. They are destroying buildings that are historic. They are changing the environment so that the memory is destroyed. And we have to do the opposite. We have to resignify the environment in which we live. We have to make the stones speak to ourselves. This is something also that connects very much with my own history because I grew up in a town that was a medieval town. Actually, it was Roman first, you know. My town, Parma, the name is the shield, the round shield of the Romans. Even before the Romans, there were the Etruscans. We still have tools from the Etruscan. I grew up in a place where it was impossible to walk the little streets without being reminded of that history. You see it. 
It's still there in many ways in the street. You still see the quid where these ratics were burned. And in the United States, when I came, I had a shock. I never knew what it meant to be in a country that seems to have no history. Being in a place where you feel like you're nowhere, you could have been dropped by a plane in a desert, cultural, historical desert, you know, what it meant. When history is something that still is there in the material fabric of our life, in our experience, in our tactile, visual experience every day. I've learned talking to women in Latin America that also this gives you courage. It gives you courage to go on when everything seems to be lost. Because you're placing yourself in a broader arc of time. Less so that the temporary defeat or setback do not have the same impact. A woman, the, I always quote her, is a woman from Guatemala. I asked her, how can women keep fighting after seeing so much horror? And she said, because for us, the dead are not really dead. For us, the dead are not really dead. So the relation to death does not have the same sense of finality that it has, that everything is finished, nothing has meaning. Finito, nothing. No, it doesn't have the meaning. So I think that this is my view of the kind of struggle that we need to make. Struggle against war, struggle against the destruction of nature, struggle for the cooperation of the urban space. And all this means, again, changing. All these are processes that then change our relationship with the people we are in, with the community we are in. Professor Federici, when you said about having the stones speak, it reminded me of a teaching that I've learned from Anishinaabe legal scholars ah. like John Burroughs, where they consider rocks, for example, to be grandfathers ah. and keepers of stories. And so when you talk about the process of commenting, changing our relationship with other people, I'm wondering if you can speak about who is it who we consider people to be part of our commons. For example, non-human beings yeah. have been excluded from peoplehood in Eurocentric theorizing, but we know in indigenous yeah. legal and political traditions, they speak of forming treaties with non-human animals yeah. and that land is far from being property, rather as Dene political theorist Glenn Coulthard speaks about, that it actually captures land rather than being property is rather relations between between different beings living in interdependence with each other. And so when we're talking about commoning, is it also about challenging or yeah. formulating or rethinking this person-property divide between people who we are in common with versus the property mm -hmm. that is being held in common? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, about the animals. I wrote in Caliban and the Witch that till the 16th century, for example, in Europe, animals were not considered like machines, were not considered brute beings. They were attributed in many days of literature, stories, fables, in which animals spoke, animals had assembly. And in fact, until the 16th century, in their books, they were brought to trial. When, for example, a wolf or a dog killed a person, there was a trial. A dog was assigned a lawyer. We have a record of trials. And then, of course, we have the theory of animals, machine, no reason, only reason, etc., etc., and reason defined in very limited ways. So absolutely, I think the world of animals so important. The animals are dying. The animals are being excluded. The animals are being hunted down. The way animals are talked about in the United States, they are actual expedition to kill wolves. 
and the issue of privatization of land. The land has been made soulless, has been made a commodity. And when that happens, then the land is taken away its life. And this is what re-enchanting the world is talking about. It's bringing back the soul to relation to the land. And the commoners are people who have capacity of their reciprocity, who are in fact engaged in a process of not only taking, but actually caring for the famous commitment to leave the earth for the next seven generations. So commoners are those who are doing the work. I was very impressed when in Guatemala, somebody told me that in some indigenous assemblies, if you don't do the work, you don't have the right to speak. In the assembly, you have the right to speak if you have done the work. So it's not that anybody in song, there has to be a commitment, but certainly not commons built on exclusionary principle. The only exclusionary principle is commitment to the common good. If you don't have the commitment, then you're not part of the common. So the idea of reciprocity, interdependence, these are all very key ideas. There's a general principle. I think the commoners are the people who care for each other, care for the land, care for the animals, and share on the basis of needs, share the wealth that is produced in a cooperative way. Definitely commons not as free for alls. I think I speak for both Aziza and myself when I say, you are a marvelous teacher. <laughs> we feel like we're people sitting at your feet. Your comments are so rich and evocative and they interlace so well. I'd like to respond to some of the things you've said because you said so many things. And you mentioned Maui and I have relatives yeah. in Maui. And they describe it as looking as if an atom bomb had been dropped on it. So the correlation between ecological violence and the violence of war is very clear. And one of the things that has come out is that besides climate change, one of the things that's caused the conflagration was the planting of non-indigenous yeah. huh. plants in Maui, uh. right, for livestock. Uh. So there is this sort of cycle of death. And it reminded me very much of Vandana Shiva's notion of suicide yes. seeds. Yeah. When, when she talks about the difference between the Indian forest as a full reproductive yeah. system and yeah. then what you call these new enclosures yeah. where you have the privatization yeah. of seeds. Yeah. It's a very powerful conflict between these two visions of the way land might be. And the quote from your book, which I think brings this out and it circles back to what you said, the attack on our reproduction makes us mutants mm. as well as migraines. The disappearance of the rainforest, the hole in the ozone layer, the pollution of the air, the seas, the beaches, along with the shrinking of our living spaces all combine to destroy our earthly yeah. commons. And I really like your notion of reproduction. And it reminds me of another person, Peter Kalmas's notion of mm. regeneration. He's a climate scientist, and he rejects the notion of oh, sustainability. Yeah. He thinks the notion of oh, sustainability yeah. is horrible. But could you talk about reproduction and regeneration yeah. as opposed to sustainability? Oh, absolutely. I mean, reproduction, it's really the perspective. In fact, myself and other women make it always very clear, particularly when talking within a, some sort of Marxist, that reproduction is not the counterpart, the equivalent of production, but it's actually a much broader ground because it's the ground in which the finality, the purpose, it's really the guaranteeing of life to people, which is not certainly the case when we speak of production. 
And so taking the perspective of reproduction already puts you within a certain context, puts you within a certain moral parameter where you have to have in mind that ensuring the life continues, ensuring the life thrives, ensuring the life is at the center is always the primary goal of social relations. And reproduction also is very broad because reproduction in a sense is everything. It's health, food, agriculture, education, knowledge. So it's a very, very broad, it's the one in a sense that encompasses all the most essential experts of life. And so I think that new and sustainability is not, and also they never say sustainability is always seen within the framework of a continuing capitalist society. And is always seen from the point of view of inventing technologies that allow to continue to allow the exploitation to continue, but in ways that are sustainable. And this is like the biggest lie, you know, so that there's not really a change. It's not responding, not to a perspective that says we have to transform the way we live because we now live in a completely destructive environment with a completely destructive logic. No, on the contrary, it's trying to show what kind of technologies we can invent so that we don't have to change, for example, the horrible consumerism, et cetera, et cetera, the horrible destruction, but making sure that it is sustainable. And uh, I think we see it every day, like a green capitalism, the way every crisis becomes a moment of exploitation. And now they're making money out of the ecological destruction, providing the so-called alternative. Okay, we are going to have agriculture at the bottom of the ocean. We are going to create seeds that are so strong. And we have seen the history of seeds. They have created enormous amount. The Green Revolution, Vandana Shiva, powerful. They have created, in addition to actually making people indebted, making people completely dependent and indebted, terminator seeds. The whole notion of the genetic engineering of seeds is totally perverse. It's really from the point of view of taking away control from the hands of people. So the notion of sustainability says nothing about the social relation. It says nothing as to whom is making the decision as to what kind of world we are going to have. It's only another trick, technological trick, to perpetuate the kind of relation that exists and inventing ways in which some change can be made, which gives the illusion of being able to continue, being able to have the plan that hold the predator relation continue. We really need another vocabulary. We spoke on an earlier episode with Ashley ah. about fortress conservation and the way that conservation now has become the agent yes. for new anti-Indigenous land grabs and colonization. Right. And so the same corporations that once justified theft of land in the name of extractivism are now justifying it in the name of conservation. And of course, it's Indigenous people who continue to be dispossessed. Yeah. You speak and write about how the new intensification of enclosure has been accompanied by a resurgence of witch hunting. Yeah. And when reading your work on witch hunting, I couldn't help Help but notice the resonances with my own area yeah. of focus, which is the war on yeah. terror, the quote unquote war on terror, and the way that the notion of the witch corresponds yeah. so closely to the figure of the yeah. terrorist from the promulgation of very vague but highly demonized offenses to the use of torture yeah. 
to extract the quote unquote truth of the guilt of the individual, which is predetermined, to the criminalization of social bonds, such as harboring, which are really targeted at dismantling all forms of social solidarity that could form resistance to these processes, which is why we see, quote unquote, terrorist institutions and powers of violence being used against every indigenous Mm. struggle against appropriation from Kashmir to Palestine to Standing Rock, Afghanistan and Iraq. And so can you speak a bit about the connection between the witch hunt and the, quote unquote, war on terror? in these politics of closure, which we see going on, which was never a primitive accumulation confined to the past, but is very much continuing in the present. It's very much continuing. What I want to say about conservation, people in some areas for generation and generation are now being forced to leave in the name of conserving, right? Because presumably they are now overusing the land. So the conservation has become really a dirty work. And the witch hunt now, talking about thousands and thousands of women, are in fact persecuted, exiled from their villages. There are concentration camps for so-called witches in the north of Ghana, in many parts of Africa, in Nigeria, even children now. And there's a whole industry that is built. For instance, this new missionary organization, evangelical, Pentecostal, missionary, and probably even today, sponsored and financed by right-wing organizations in the United States. They now are all over Africa, all over Asia, Papua New Guinea, East Timor, and other places. Also, we have witch hunts in India. There are many themes that are fueling today's witch hunts. One theme is the land. This is a theme that connects witch hunts in many parts of Africa to witch hunts in Papua, and in India, and you have to understand it by putting it in a broader sphere because the fact that in most parts of the world now, due to the agricultural development program of the World Bank and the IMF, due to the massive privatization of land, the whole imposition of this scheme like individual titles, commons are broken down and individual titles are sold at a very high price, And that's usually a very violent process. Due to all of that, conflicts over land become really very widespread in Kenya, in in South Africa. So one of the main victims is women. There is a whole push to exclude women from access to communal land or to actually have any land ownership. They are accused of all the evils, like the terrorists. And as you said, lack of evidence doesn't matter. So the whole issue of terrorism, like the issue we're chanting today, breaks the struggle, breaks the resistance of community, puts community against each other, creates suspicions and divisions, and of course, attacks those people in the community who are pushing for more autonomy, who are demanding, making certain claims. You know, I'm very excited about what's happening in Montana with young people that revolt. It's very interesting. The children in the last years have become more and more prominent as strugglers, as they have been in the past. Because when you look at the 19th century, you will see the children, in part because children were workers. And so their story of children going on strike. It's very good that more recently we saw many initiatives of children organizing against guns violence because they live with the terror every day of going to school and we shot it. And they know that this society is not protecting them. These governments are not protecting them. And now the children in Montana 
children are realizing that there is no future for them if this continues, that these elderly are leaving to them an earth that is poisoned, that is doomed, and that this is really powerful to see them. And there is a capitalist undervaluation of children, right? Children are treated as little animals. People, children are treated as not having any rights. Children are in many ways the slave of our age because they have so little rights. Their body can be violated in so many ways, even in the best circumstances. So I think, in fact, something that I fought the feminist movement for is that it has not fought for children. It has fought for violence against women. It has not fought adequately at all for the violence against children. So you have such a beautiful anecdote in Caliban and the Witch with the Jesuit preacher who was trying to convince an Innu leader of his backwardness and uncivilized nature of his own society by saying, look, you don't even know if this person is your son. And the Innu leader responded, you Europeans, you only love people who you think of as your own children, whereas we love all of the children in our community. And so this misopity, this hatred of children, it's not universal. It's very much a colonial idea of yeah, exactly. And also the missionary taught indigenous people to beat up their children because it was not known that you should beat up your children. And the fact that today violence against children is institutionally not only accepted, but in the history of capitalism, it has been recommended. Spare the rod, the child. So their violence actually has been recommended as a pedagogical tool. So the revolution is to put also the children at the center. In the book on re-enchanting the world, you quote a commoner who says that the commons is lived, it can't adequately be theorized. And we know that academic work often does so much violence to the experiences and the knowledge and the theories of activists, of communities, of indigenous people, of women, which are not only distorted, but too often treated as a common property or a terra nullius, yeah. which can be freely expropriated and doesn't gain value until it's put in an yeah. academic framework. So now, for example, we have purportedly progressive books on the subjectivity of trees or the subjectivity of non-humans, which in the same breath will describe a scientist claiming something as his discovery, which a few sentences later he acknowledges that indigenous peoples have been saying and theorizing for thousands of years. And so can you talk a bit about what the role is of academics, of writers in writing about things like the commons in ways which also transform the very modes of knowledge production. I think that academic research should be at the service of the struggle, should be involved in the struggle. And there is a very beautiful essay that Maria Mies, who died on May 14, wrote at the end of the 70s when there was the beginning of a boom of women's studies. She wrote a beautiful piece on feminist research and women's studies in which she set a whole set of guidelines. You should look for it. I believe it's on the internet. And this was very powerful and I think can be generalized beyond women's studies. She was really worried that women's study will be the end of feminist research, that you become an academic, institutionalized. It was still what it needed, selectively still from the work that women have done, and then institutionalizing and turning against, because in that way it will become a way of disciplining women, of in a sense killing what is vital. And as she said very clearly, you can not have a research that is not part of the struggle. The moment that research is not part of the struggle, that research inevitably has to become an instrument of disciplining the struggle. So the research has to be with people 
together with people and has to have very thoughtful. This is the only way in which academic research can actually be a transformative project. So it's really a question of figuring out how the academic research is really a help, a contribution, or something that is really indifferent to what are the consequences of the spoken or the written word. Written and spoken word have consequences. Words are action, and you have to be very careful how you use them. And they cannot be commodities on a shelf. And very often in academia, you feel that they are. They serve the purpose of getting a promotion, of getting a tenure, of getting some notoriety. So it seems to me like you're right about the struggle. When Aziza was speaking about academics and institutional knowledge, I was thinking that, well, this is another new enclosure. And you have a wonderful discussion mm. of Standing Rock. And you say, the commoning activities that are created under emergency conditions do not disappear without leaving yeah. some traces, although not always yeah. visible to the naked eye. And I'm a literary scholar, and I want to mm. speak about art. How can art Ooh. make things visible? How can we continue these things beyond yes. their yes. immediate? Well, actually, art is a very, I think it's a very big topic today. I think that there have been a number of changes. I think there's a new generation of activists who are now interested in rejecting the traditional bourgeois and now neoliberal conception of art, which celebrate art, but in ways that instrumental to appropriating art and impoverishing the artist. Appropriating art for commodity purposes and expropriating the artist. So one step is to say art is something special. Without looking at that art is a kind of work, is a kind of production, it has to be sustained. Art has to be working in conditions where they don't have to starve, artists have to be compensated and instead celebrate the artists as a sort of genius and so on. For example, when galleries are telling artists that they don't have to pay them because the artists should be grateful to be given the possibility to show their work. Recently, I've been writing, reading and talking about this work called Artwork by Katja Plasnik. She is a woman from Slovenia. It's a very interesting work because she has used some of the theories that we have developed in relation to housework in the 1970s to talk about work and their relationship as like housework, domestic work. You say, oh, domestic work, it's not work. This is love of your children. You're not supposed to want to have any compensation for it because you should be happy that you are a mother, right? So the artist is saying, oh, celebrating the art to devalue it, celebrating the art to hide the robbery that this celebration justifies. So that the poor artist who has to be grateful to be given the opportunity to show in a gallery, then has to work in a, in a restaurant, whatever work, has to do a miserable life. So there is now a generation of artists who are struggling against that to basically show that art is a production and that art should be supported socially because art as it is now, as part of that celebration, it's a patch for the rich. It's only limited to the enjoyment of a limited part of the population. Whereas part, art should be guaranteed to everybody. It should be part of every aspect of our life. It's a need, it's an enrichment. Most schools today, unless they are private and catering to rich children, most schools have abolished 
art programs. Children are growing up deprived of access to art, whether it is music, painting, sculpture. So all of this is connected to the neoliberal conception of art that is, again, celebrated and devalued. And the other thing also that is happening, which I think is important, is the move away from a very individualized conception of art. There is a more of a push towards collective forms and to have the artist also trying to involve community. All over the United States, we have seen people, community coming together, right? There were mural of George Floyd, even in the park, even in the park, people went to stone and put a slogan, put face, put flowers, but that is broader that only a response to George Floyd, which of course was a tremendous emotional response, right? The idea of collective, of coming together to make a community beautiful, to make a community say, express itself, to show its face, to not be invisible, to come out of invisibility through art. And that art is a collective voice, is a collective process. These are very encouraging trends that there is a refusal of this, you know, house for the top of the mountain. <laughs> Such a wonderful note to end on. And we are so immensely grateful to you for being with us today, but also for your tremendous body of work, Sylvia. You've been a participant in so many struggles for so long. And Aziza and I really feel that the reenchantment of the commons could yeah. not come at a more important time. It's the culmination, but it's also the pointing forward of a tremendous body of work that gives us sustenance and hope at a time when we need it the most. Oh, we, so we began by talking about magic and we ended by talking about beauty and we had joy in the middle. And I think that's just such a perfect encapsulation of what the project is, which is about restoring an ugly world, which so often represents its ugliness as, well, as beauty. So thank, thank you. you to both. Thank you to both. It's been a pleasure to be with you and I'm very glad with, you know, that this work is useful. Please take a moment to like this episode and subscribe to this podcast. This will help bring it to other people's attentions. You might also follow me on Twitter at Palumbo Liu and let us know about any subjects you would like us to cover or people or groups you'd like us to interview.